Well, I am delighted to be back with you, and I've been so blessed as I've followed along from afar uh, as uh, Paul and Matt and Nick have preached over the last three Sundays and continuing the series in Titus, and uh, we're going to jump into chapter three today. So we have this week and next week, and then we wrap up this very short book. I don't know if any of you have read it from start to finish. Uh, it took me all of about six and a half minutes yesterday to read through it. It's not a long book, but it is packed, isn't it? And I was thinking, I, I almost feel this sense of sadness that we only have uh, today and next week left in Titus. There's so much rich teaching and so many significant points where the Apostle Paul uh, takes us to Christ. And here at the outset of chapter 3, he'll do it again. So as we open the word together today, let's pause for just a moment here at the outset and pray and ask for the Lord's help to understand the word. Father, this word is your word. You have taught us that it is inspired by your very spirit. And all of it, every word of it is profitable to us. And we ask today that you would make the, the prophet of Titus 3 live in our hearts, that we may understand its truth and believe it, that we may understand the instruction that comes from it and live it, that we may be reproved by it as is necessary and repent, uh, whether it be of our sinful or wrong thoughts or sinful and incorrect actions. And as you correct us, and as you then equip us and furnish us with a, a proper understanding that it would amount to changed lives and changed living uh, at, the, at the most practical level. And so we ask, great God, that you would come uh, by the power of the Spirit and use this word for our comfort, for our encouragement, for our growth today. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever Googled before and after, and then maybe even put the little word before and after fails? Uh, there's highly entertaining material there. And I don't know what is totally behind this particular story, but I'm sure that for the baker, this seemed like a little creative option, and maybe they were bored with making round cookies or even square cookies, and so somebody thought, if I put batter or cookie dough of some kind on this cookie sheet in the form of a, of a running man, uh, then something marvelous will, something entertaining, something beautiful or pleasing. But afterwards, they, they realized it just, just didn't work out. Some of you are pet owners, and Fido is sweet, but sometimes Fido needs to be groomed and you know, the fur gets long and unmanageable, and so before you see Fido and you think afterwards Fido will look glorious, but it doesn't always work out this way. I'd put that into the category of a fail. Should have left things the way they were. Here's an advertisement. It's hard to, hard to see here at the lower left corner, but there's a young lady who's smile has improved dramatically, and, and apparently some young man looked at this 
advertisement and thought, well, you know, maybe I could have a brand new smile too. And, and either went to this dental group or ordered the, you know, special uh, braces and such, and it didn't quite work out the way <laughs> that uh, the advertisement promised. There's a different kind of before and after in the gospel, and I'm glad to report to you that everyone who comes to Jesus with all of that junk and sin and corruption and brokenness of before experiences a renovation that really is difficult to fathom. And in our passage today of Titus 3, we're going to experience something really significant. Let's read this first of all. Look at your scriptures with me, if you will, please. And if you don't have a copy of the Word of God for yourself, we have copies in the, in the seat racks in front of you. You're welcome not only to use that Bible during the service today, but to take, take it with you if you need your own copy of the scriptures. Follow along as I read Titus 3, verses 1 through 8. Remind them, Paul says to Titus, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. The commands of this particular book we've been studying are sandwiched between the two great appearances of Jesus Christ, our God and Savior, as he's described in chapter 3 here. We're a people who, as we noted last week, as, as Nick preached through the end of chapter 2, we're a people looking forward to the future appearance of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And now Paul notes in chapter 3 that we are a people who look back to his first appearance. These two appearances have totally altered the course of human history. And the first appearance, as we will consider it this morning, uh, did something so drastic, so radical, that many of us have never been the same. Now, in Paul's day, it was Crete that needed believers to live in a profoundly and powerfully countercultural way. And in our day, it is the great cities of the world, not just our nation, the communities just like ours that are in need of believers to live in a profoundly and powerfully countercultural way. The first heading I want you to think under this morning as we look through verses 1 and 2 is that we, as followers of Christ, are called to live in a personally but powerfully countercultural way. Countercultural distinction from this present age. 
Now notice, first of all, uh, several of the commands. There are seven of them, actually, that, that Paul just throws out in rapid-fire succession. I want to group them under four particular headings. Uh, that's in part because I think the last four all kind of go together and have to do with our communication. But the first, would, the first would be this, orderly submission. We are called to orderly submission. Look at verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Now, if you remember the context, Crete was not known for its sweet, submissive spirit. Paul had quoted one of their prophets earlier that described them as lazy gluttons. They, they were notorious for a, for a fighting spirit. You can read some of the, the early uh, Greek historians who described life in Crete. One of them wrote, the notoriously turbulent character of the Cretans uh, would, would be described in this way. They were constantly involved in insurrections, murders, and mutually destructive wars. It's not even that they, are, that they are proud to be from Crete, and there's kind of this nationalistic spirit that united them together. They just seem to be happy to fight with anybody, whether internally or externally. And so God's word for Cretan believers and for us is to be submissive. That is people who willingly place themselves in an orderly fashion under the political rulers. Now, in Paul's day, they were not elected officials. They had no representatives who went on behalf of the voting uh, of the people to represent them in a legislature or Congress or some group. They lived under a dictatorship. When this letter was written, we believe it was in the early years of Nero. He had not yet gone into the crazy phase of Nero where he just absolutely destroyed his opposition, including open persecution of believers, but these were not easy days for them to submit. We are called to orderly submission. Now notice in the second place, you can see from the screen, we are called to active obedience. Paul says, remind them to be obedient. And here he broadens it beyond the elected authorities. This idea of obedience has to do with following the instructions or the laws that any authority would give you. So it might be an elected official, it might be a police officer, it might be a parent, a teacher, an employer. We're to be people characterized by this obedience. Now there are qualifications put on this in the scriptures, right? Romans 13 is one of those passages that many people have posted to Facebook and Instagram and Christians struggle even today to, to apply it rightly and big differences of opinion. But what Paul says there is very simple and direct. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. The general principle is this. We are a people submitted to God. God is king over all, God over all things, and he is the one who's given us this instruction. He actually sets up and pulls down earthly authorities. Generally speaking, we submit to earthly authorities because we're submitted to God. But there are those exceptions where earthly authorities come and say to us, you must not do, and then they'll fill in the blank with things that God has clearly commanded. Or they, they actually say, you must do, positively speaking, things that God has forbidden. Well, God doesn't call us to just blindly obey earthly authorities at that point, whether they be governing officials, whether they be spouses or parents or, 
or local authorities know, you find helpful stories in the scriptures, such as one recorded in Acts 5.29, where the local authorities had come to Peter and the apostles and said, stop preaching the gospel. And these men at that particular point said very plainly, it's recorded in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. So there are occasions where we would disobey the local authorities in order to keep the commandments or, or instructions of God himself. But those are the exceptions to the rule. Now, I know we're living in a day where it's just crazy town, and we're all a little uncertain as to what we should do and should not do. Even some of you coming into an assembly like this wrestle, God, I want to honor you, but I don't want to you know, just follow people blindly, or, and we feel that tension. Well, Paul is saying to Titus, remind the, the saints in your church to be obedient. Generally, we need to be characterized by following instructions that are given. Now, here's a third thing you can see again on the screen, personal preparation. Look at the next phrase. This all flows out of those two words, remind them. Uh, here is number three, to be ready for every good work. The command is actually readiness, preparation. Be prepared specifically for every good work. Now in Titus, Paul has used this phrase or will use this phrase a total of, of six times. He refers to Titus himself as a man who should be a model of good works. He has said in chapter two, verse 14, just those of you who were here last week would remember, believers have been redeemed and purified in order that we might be zealous for good works. There are some who would argue that Paul is speaking to Titus and the Cretans in a very specific, narrow way. They ought to be active in civic duties. And while I think good works would certainly include that, I think it's broader than that, in part because as you read to the end of this chapter, you will see uh, Paul saying to Titus, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need. We say, what are cases of urgent need? Well, he doesn't fill in the blanks, but it seems like it would be something within the context of the local assembly of saints where someone might have a financial need or maybe there's a, a physical need that can be met by the congregation itself. It's an urgent need that calls for the good works of the people who are aware. So I think Paul is, is clearly speaking to Titus and the saints at Crete to be active publicly and personally in all kinds of good works. The question we ought to be asking day in and day out is how can I act or speak in such a way that I bring blessing and good to the community that I'm a part of? How can I do it in the workplace? How can I do it when I'm in line at Walmart or Target? How can I do it as I take my car and to get it registered or serviced? How can I do it as I'm standing in the front yard? What am I in a position to do by way of good works that would bring blessing and benefit? Oh, how our society needs it right now. There's so much hostility, so much pent-up fear, so much stress and anger and all kinds of things that just flow out of the hearts and mouths of people. What a difference it would make if we who are followers of Jesus would be actively doing good works. Now, that's not all that God has called us to, but he has called us to be prepared for good works. Matt's going to say more about this at the at the end of the service in our closing announcements, but we have another opportunity coming in this week ahead to participate in a local food bank 
That's a very practical way that all of us can be involved, either on the donation side or the distribution side or whatever else comes in between. Good works. Some of you are going to have very significant opportunities this week, and, and there's no way to prepare for it right now that in, in that you would know the details, but you begin to prepare your heart and you say, Lord, as I return to the classroom this week or the workplace, would you give me an opportunity to do good works? It'll be there. It'll be there. Will you be prepared? Here's the fourth command, really a category to capture those last four particular words. We're called to Christ-like communication. Now, there are two prohibitions and then two positive commands that run together. Look at verse 2 with me. Remind them to speak evil of no one. This is terminology that speaks of slandering, speaking in a way to hurt the reputation of others. This should never characterize the people of God. There are times where we stand for truth where we have to speak openly truth that might actually hurt someone, but only in the sense with a view of confronting the wrong so that it could be remedied. We never just stand up and speak things that harm other people, and, and that's the end of it. We're so weary in this political cycle, aren't we? And as even the ads ramp up on the internet and, and television, I mean, it's just like, please, somebody stop. Those are the easy examples of this kind of speech. It's designed to do nothing more than hurt the reputation of another person. Paul is urging Christians to restrain what really comes natural to us. It's natural to us to speak in a way that hurts other people. But when Jesus comes and begins a supernatural work, changes us, we speak in a different way. Here's the second prohibition, to avoid quarreling. That means that you're not predisposed to fight. Do you know anybody like this? Do you know people are just looking to mix it up? It, it doesn't matter if it's verbal uh, or physical. They're, they're just looking for a fight. And our Lord says, this, this should not characterize my people. Not quarreling. Avoid it. Our social media pages and even some of our personal conversations uh, should not look like the UFC octagon. Some of you are familiar with that. Others of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Are you familiar with professional wrestling? I mean, it's a big show, and, and UFC is actually real fighting. Professional wrestling is scripted. I know I just offended some of you. You're like, it is not. <laughs> yeah. We all have a pretty good idea before those things start who's, who's coming out, right? Not in the UFC. It's brutal. And there are conversations that are actually bloodier and have greater and more difficult consequences long-term because the words we rain down on one another do horrific damage. In verse 9, Paul applies it specifically to quarrels about the law of God. It's one thing to quarrel about political opinions or personal ideas and such, but when we take the Word of God and use it as the ground of battle, what harm we do to the reputation of Christ, what harm we do to the work of Christ. Here's a countercultural strategy. Those are the two prohibitions. Look at the next two phrases. First of all, to be gentle. That word speaks specifically of communication that is appropriate and suitable to the moment or the context. 
accompanied by a spirit that is willing to yield where it can. You don't see a ton of that these days, do you? And even for some who yield to the requests of, of local authorities, for instance, that, that's even turned back on them as if they're soft or weak or they're sheeple. That's a helpful term to call people these days. Now, we ought to be people who actually cultivate that spirit like our Lord who himself is gentle. And then number four, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And that little word to show means make it visible. Put it into practice. Put it out there. Perfect courtesy has to do with acting in a manner that is also gentle and mild and even-tempered. Take some effort in this day and age to show that kind of courtesy. Sadly, it shouldn't. It should be the default nature of every one of us, particularly who follow Jesus Christ. We wish that some of our leaders would show more courtesy. I think some have mistakenly thought that, well, if if I'm gentle and courteous in this way, then it's weakness. No, it's actually not weakness. It actually reflects a greater inner strength. I was thinking what a contrast Jesus is with all other earthly leaders, at least most who are in the news these days. I'm so thankful that Jesus himself is a gentleman that he is always marked by gentleness and he's always marked by courtesy. And it, and it doesn't flow out of any weakness within him, does it? It actually reflects the perfect strength, the sovereign strength that is his. You know, when you're king in the universe, you never need to walk into a room and, and kind of prove to everybody else there that you're something. You never need to strut your stuff. You can just occupy your space in your sovereign power and your perfect wisdom and be a gentleman. That's Jesus. Well, these are characteristics that Paul says ought to describe the people of God at Creed, and they ought to describe us. And some of us feel like, but, but there's so much that is upsetting to me personally today, and that threatens the, the world or the nation that we've known. And if we don't stand up for our rights, and if we don't, if we don't voice our objection to some of the horrific things that are taking place, and we're going to lose it all, we'll be steamrolled. But notice how Paul wisely asks us to step back even from these immediate instructions and the immediate circumstances because it was not an easy moment in history for the Cretans to follow Christ and conduct their daily business. Notice what Paul does next. Look at verse 3 with me because in one sense this is surprising. The big heading is this. We must remember the power of Christ's appearing But part of that is going back even a little further and and recalling that before his appearing, we were people in need of mercy. And not just a little bit of mercy, we needed mercy in every way. And again, there are three headings that I would group seven characteristics that Paul now gives us. The first is, we were a people depraved in our sin. He's not talking about other people. He's not talking about primitive cultures or uneducated groups that might be out there, he's actually talking about us. And he's saying, remember, we ourselves were once all of this. Now, depraved in sin has has two particular attributes that I want you to notice. The word foolish and disobedient. Foolish means out of our minds. Not just that we make stupid decisions and do stupid things, but actually that we don't have capacity to govern ourselves. 
Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, Proverbs tells us. But a rod of correction will drive that foolishness far from that child. That's one of the hardest things about parenting. These little ones that God graciously brings into our home are born as fools. And if parents don't bring corrective discipline and positive instruction and exhortation, and if parents aren't relentless in that over many, many years, those children will grow up to be adult fools because that's what they were born as. And it's a particularly painful thing to see an adult who has no capacity to self-govern. And there are a number of them in our culture, aren't there? Well, that's what foolishness is. Second word is disobedient. And that has the idea of unwilling to be persuaded. Not just that you don't know what's right or wrong. You don't want to know. And when somebody steps into your world and says, "Uh, can I offer a suggestion? You just bristle and say, no, you may not. I think I may have shared this story with you before, but we've we've been friends with uh, a particular family through the years, and the the dad and several of us grew up together, known them a long, long time, and and, uh, my wife's sister lived in, still lives in the Atlanta area, and of course, many trips to visit them. That's actually part of the occasion of our, our recent travels uh, to go back to the Atlanta area. But years ago, when many of us were first married and, and starting out to build our families, we were guests in the home of this one friend and his wife. And their oldest child uh, was very young at this particular point. I wish I could remember the exact age. I'm, I'm estimating four or five. Uh, but my brother-in-law and I sat in one particular room, just room by ourselves that night and other people were throughout the house, and this little girl wandered in, and she began to mess with something there, I think, on the coffee table that we just knew a four-year-old is going to, this is going to create trouble, it's going to break, uh, this little vase or whatever it was, and my brother-in-law speaks up and says to her, uh, Claire, I don't think you should mess with that, and she turned and looked at him with this fire in her eyes and defiance in her spirit that was just erupting, and, and so just imagine a four or five-year-old looking at an adult, and she said, I don't even obey my own daddy. And my brother and I looked at each other at the same time, and we both just went, wow. Now, I'm happy to report that this little girl came under the influence of Jesus Christ and uh, has, has come to follow him. And I'm sure if she were here today, she would, first of all, be embarrassed, and we would all say, I can't believe that little child or that this woman as a little child could say something like that. But, you know, that that's... That's just hardwired into all of us. It's not, it's not just that we don't want to obey our own daddies. We don't want to obey anybody. That's the kind of disobedience that Paul is speaking of here. And those two words characterize a kind of depravity that must be remedied by more than just a self-determination. Oh, I'm going to live a different life. Second category, and you can see on the screen there, enslaved to our sin. Look at the next two terms. Led astray. That is, these are people who have been seduced. It's not even that their wills are active in it, but that foolishness opens the door for them to be vulnerable and susceptible to all kinds of false ideas and deadly ideologies. They are led astray. The same way that you and I take pets on a walk, 
We put them on a leash. We determine where they go. We determine how long we'll be out. We determine when we come back. Those pets are led by the owner, and these people are led astray, both by their own passions and by others around them. Slaves to sin. Well, the second term there, slaves to various passions and pleasures, is even more grim. Paul's point is that we were people once completely dominated by passions, he says, first of all. Those are the inordinate, self-indulgent cravings that are counter to God, that will always displace a proper love and obedience for God. These are passions that even bring about hostility with others. Then he uses the term pleasures. It's the term from which we get hedonism. People who live solely for their own physical or sensual pleasure. And I think what a grim and graphic illustration we've seen even in recent days of this kind of slavery to our sin. On the heels of a season, the, uh, the Me Too movement er erupted, and well, it should have. For criminals like Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein should be charged with criminal activity, should be held accountable if these things are so. Uh, the, the abuse of young women over many, many years is a horrific thing. Yet, what did Netflix produce in, in the last couple of weeks? Some of you have seen it and been aghast, even at just the, the, the brief descriptions where 11 and 12-year-old girls, despite what is being promoted by Hollywood, that this is just a coming-of-age story, and we're not trying to abuse or take advantage of these girls. From what I've read, and I will not watch it, it absolutely is the exploitation of young girls. It's the example of how a culture is enslaved to its sin. It can't help itself. The third category is devoted to our sin. But Paul says, passing our days in malice and envy. Malice is one side of this. It's wishing and endeavoring to do evil to others. And envy is the resentment of the good others enjoy. Those two things go together. So on the one side, you're saying, you know what? It, it really bugs me that those people enjoy what they do. And the other side of that is, not only do I wish they, they didn't have that good, whatever form it takes, I actually want to do them harm. Can you fathom this kind of corruption? Paul says we all once were like this, and some still are. And then finally, the pair hated by others and hating one another. People are detestable in your sight, and you're detestable in theirs. Haters are, in fact, gonna hate. This is who we were. This is not a description of that political group out there you despise so much, or that little you know, protest movement that really irritates you. This is who we were. And this is how every one of us would have lived out all our days had something spectacular not happened. Look at verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. What a moment. What an appearing. Do you notice how Paul writes this? Look at it again. He doesn't say when God our Savior appeared in goodness and loving kindness. He actually speaks of goodness and loving kindness being personified. You see, goodness and loving kindness is not just something that Jesus does from time to time. It's what he is. And what a contrast. Goodness, that, that is a term that speaks of, of his quality of being warm-hearted, considerate, 
humane and gentle and loving kindness. Literally, he's a lover of people. There's never been a philanthropist like Jesus. The first indication of this astonishing goodness and loving kindness is not simply that he became that he came to befriend humankind, but became human in order that he might share all the weakness, share our temptation, share our sickness and our fatigue, but to befriend the very kind of people that Paul was describing in those first couple of verses. Think of the ones that he befriended, the ones who were wrecked and ruined by their sin. And there he is touching and healing lepers, restoring sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, feeding the hungry, hugging the little children who were marginalized by the society they were a part of. He, he befriends sinners who were so despised and abused by society that, that they would not even lift their eyes above the dirt beneath their feet. And the 12 disciples that he chose, think about that crowd. What a picture of Christ's capacity to befriend people of such different worldviews, from the four fishermen to the tax collector, from a political zealot to a man of such small significance that he was simply known as Little James. We don't know exactly uh, James the Less, as some of your English versions have translated it. We're not sure if that refers to his physical stature or if it actually just speaks of his reputation. One author, I got a little bit of a kick out of this, said, you know, to, to understand this, uh, you might think in terms of micro-James. And I think that's how a lot of us feel. Small and insignificant, easily overlooked. But here's Jesus coming as the personification of goodness and loving kindness and says, I want you as my friend. I want you as my friend. I want you as my friend. And we stand there in awe and say, but I'm so corrupt in every way. How could you ever want me as your friend? And that's where this gospel unfolds in a beautiful and powerful way for us because Christ appeared to save us eternally. It was countercultural in that goodness and loving kindness were things this world really did not know. But there was more to it than Jesus just wanting to show a difference between his character and ours. Look at the text. He saved us, verse 5 says. He delivered from sin and evil and the coming judgment. He didn't appear this first time in order that we might be condemned and destroyed. John wrote of that in chapter 3, verses 16, 17, and 18 of his gospel. Now, Jesus saw perfectly all that we were and determined to save us, lest we completely destroy ourselves and one another. And why did he do it? This is what's remarkable. Look at the text. I've tried to summarize it there on the screen for you. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Jesus didn't enter the world when that really rotten humanity that, that we just described, where Paul says, remember, we once were all that. It's not like that group got together and said, you know what? We're a really rotten bunch. We should do better. And we should call out to God and begin to serve Him and amend our ways. And, and rather than disobeying and slandering one another and, and living in malice and for evil and hating one another and being hated, we, we should change all that and become followers of God. No, that's, that's not what motivated Jesus to come. So this salvation could not be according to good works because we don't do good works by nature. There is no righteousness within us. 
not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Mercy is the compassion that Jesus feels as he looks upon really rotten people. Most of us get angry, irritated, we're fearful, we're offended, and we'll say things like this, well, he ought to know better. How is anybody that stupid that they would make those choices? How could anybody be so evil or violent or, or we look at it that way. Jesus looks at this rottenness and his heart is moved with compassion. And that compassion in turn moved him to enter the world to say, if I don't come and save these people, they will absolutely destroy themselves and be lost forever. It also occurs to me that mercy can only be seen as it hangs against a backdrop of misery. It, it's, there's a corollary to, you know, some of you have said, I stopped praying for patience because when I prayed, my life got really hard. Well, that's because you don't really know if you're patient unless you're under pressure. You know what? You don't know if you, really what mercy looks like except there is a, a, a context of misery for mercy to enter. I mean, when things are going great and life is as it should be, and you got your health, your bank account is, you know, overflowing with money and, you know, life is good. You don't need mercy. But when you look at your life and say, I'm a mess, not just my circumstances, I'm the real mess here, then you know you need mercy. That brings us to an important point. Do you know why, for some of you, the mercy of God is no big deal today? It's because you still don't see yet that you're actually a miserable person in your sin. You still have this delusion that, that you can work yourself out of the difficult stuff, that you can self-rescue, and that's just not true. Paul says, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, but Jesus saved us according to mercy. How did he do it? Look at the next phrase. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Let's take a moment to unpack that. First of all, there's this divine act of cleansing. You didn't cleanse yourself. I didn't cleanse myself. Jesus comes by the specific work of the Holy Spirit and works a complete cleansing. And then the words regeneration and renewal appear. Regeneration is a regenesis, if you will. So it's not just kind of a little update. We're going to, you know, kind of refresh you and, and add a few new upgrades to your life. No, it's a total renovation. Some of you have done that in your homes, and it's a lot of hard work. Some of you may have even been in a situation uh, where you said, you know what, there's nothing here worth saving, so we're just going to bulldoze it and start all over. That's the kind of regeneration that, that Jesus does. And that makes me so thankful because I look at the old me and I say, I don't want just a little better version of the old me. I want a new me. That's what regeneration is. And the renewal spoken of here is a renewing or renovation which makes a person different than he or she was in the past. The old church father and pastor Chrysostom comments, and, and this is from what, second century AD. As when a house is in a ruinous state, no one places props under it, nor makes any addition to the old building, but pulls it down to its foundation and rebuilds it anew. So in our case, God has not repaired us, but has made us anew. What a remarkable thought. Some of you today, would, would, if you were honest, have to say, I need to be made new. Then here it is. This offers for you. 
You don't have to stand on the outside looking in saying, could I get in on that regeneration renewal? The answer is absolutely, because when Jesus Christ appeared, God our Savior, he came in order that generation by generation, people like you and me would be renewed. Then he says, verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So here God the Father is pouring out the Holy Spirit on those who come to him in faith through Jesus Christ and the work that he did in his life and death and resurrection. And this is the most amazing part of this before and after. Remember the goofy and, and failing before and after shots I showed you at the, at the beginning of the service? The remarkable reality of the gospel is that it takes people who before were absolutely corrupt in every way, slaves to and slaves to their passions out of their minds in a kind of spiritual corruption and foolishness that we can't fully fathom. And Jesus enters the world and as the personification of goodness and loving kindness and because of mercy, not because you earned it or deserved it, he works this regeneration and renewal so that the after you is totally different than the before you. And for what purpose? Look at verse seven. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs. What a staggering before and after. Before, I was a hater of God and of my fellow man. After, I'm an heir with Jesus. That means I have the full rights and privileges of Jesus himself. Everything that he possesses, I have a share in. Everything that he will establish by his eternal kingdom, I have a full share in. An heir. What kindness this is. What astonishing mercy this is. Before a hater, after an heir. What has been promised by God and Christ to his heirs has not yet been experienced. One author has written, but in becoming heirs through salvation, Christians become possessors of a guaranteed future. And that is what we refer to as the hope of eternal life. Aren't you thankful today that this life as we know it is not all there is? I, I think I would actually be in an insane asylum right now. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not exaggerating this. If I didn't have the hope first of all, that there is a God over all things and that there is life after this, that Jesus is who he is and he's done what he did for our salvation. I, I think I would so despair, I, I would go choose to live where I could get perpetual care and just kind of like do the best I can. And so that the Cretans and so that you and I would take this word, believe it, and, and begin to live it. Look at verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Do you see the connection? The powerful truths of who Jesus is, the, the, the incarnation of goodness and loving kindness, and the powerful truth of what he has done, that is, he saves really wretched people by mercy. Those truths translate now into good works. But you, don't, you better not get those backwards. You don't do the good works to get mercy. No, you do the good works because you got mercy. So you know what? We as people, as crazy as these times are, we anchor our souls to this non-negotiable, unchangeable truth, and we say, all right, it's time to roll up the sleeves and get to work in this crazy society. How can we be the presence of good? How can we be the voice of, of Christ's 
goodness and loving kindness. How can we do this? And Paul says, this is, this is trustworthy stuff. That means it's reliable. It's absolutely true and dependable. You want to make a difference in this dying, burning up, burning out world? Uh, please hear me carefully. Don't settle for a secondary movement of social change. You begin to anchor your mind and your heart in God's truth, and, and that's actually going to generate a, a much more significant cultural change. The kind of change that this nation and the nations of the earth needs right now is gospel transformation. Now, when the gospel begins to change people, I should say when Jesus begins to change people, all kinds of political, social, economic, educational stuff falls out of that. Just, just read history, despite how some are trying to say religion is the problem. That, that actually is a separate discussion. But even in saying that, that's not, it wouldn't be accurate to say true Christianity is the problem. No, true Christianity is the means to some of the most powerful transformation the world has ever known. And so God is calling us into that line of thinking. Do you know what's neat to me? As some of you actually work this out and prepare yourself for good works, some of you are going to move with Christ and his, his good news, the gospel, into the realm of politics, into the realm of social uh, efforts and social work. Some of you will move into education. Some of you will move into commerce and actually establish businesses that are going to employ other people, which will bring good. But, but you can't just drop down to that second tier and say, this is what our world needs. No, the world needs Jesus. Are you in right relationship with him today? Because if you are, you're actually his first great strategy. He wants to put you right in the middle of a culture, just like he was putting the Cretan believers in the middle of a really depraved, broken culture. And he's saying, I want you to live in such a way that you are the indisputable proof that I am the God and Savior who is goodness, who is loving kindness, who is mercy. That's what, that's what God wants to do with you. So be that. Live it. Believe it. Rest in it. This is the power of Christ's goodness. This is the power of Christ's loving kindness. This is the power of Christ's mercy. And this is the power of His appearing. Very briefly, I, I kind of want to give you three suggestions for now what? How do we respond to God's Word? And this would be true not just every Sunday that you come here, but every time you open the Word. First of all, choose your next step of faith and obedience. The Christian life is a walk, and, and you can never take 10 steps at once. So what's the next step for you? For some of you, just to be to believe some of this truth at the simplest level. Believe what the Spirit has spoken to you through the Word, and determine to obey it as, as you leave this morning. But be thinking in terms of what is my next step? What's my next step? Then number two, consider letting someone pray with you right here, right now. Maybe a friend that you just grab and say, you know, could we just take 60 seconds just to pray over these things that we've heard today? Some of you say, I need prayer. There's a particular need. I, I've barely been able to concentrate on the music and the message this morning because I'm just so overwhelmed right now. You know, there's several of us who are available to pray with you. I'll, I'll be right here after the service and would love to talk with you. Um, so it might be you just grab a friend or it might be that you seek someone out to pray with you over a specific need. Uh, but then I would also say there's an opportunity for all of you to set up a follow-up conversation.
Our pastoral team uh, does this all week and pretty much every week. Uh, we can find a time in the next several days to talk through some things because you, you may be saying, I had some questions. Some of that made really good sense. Some of it I'm not so sure about. Then set up a, a, a follow-up conversation. And, and that doesn't have to be limited to our pastoral team. There are lots of people here who would love to just open God's Word and show you from the, from the Scriptures who Jesus is and show you more of what He has done and what He's calling us into. Let's pray together, please. Father, these words are so needed. And there's a lot here, and we've covered a lot of ground. So we need Your help now to just distill it into a couple of simple steps and truths. So help us, please, and seal your word to our hearts. Change us, change this community, change our nation, change our world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.